Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 18, page 877, if you've got a Bible from out at the entry. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid, and as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him about the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from the branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field." Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest, lowliest of men. One more verse. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, the second reading comes from Luke chapter 22. Uh, you can find that on page 1044 of the Church Bibles. So Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Then skipping over to verse 54. 
Then seizing him, they led, away, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Well, it'll be good to have Daniel 4 open in front of you. Uh, we're going to work our way through that this evening. Uh, there's a sermon outline if you find that helpful. And uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks and reveals yourself to us uh, through your word and through your Son. As we uh, have heard your word read and as we uh, think, it, uh, think about it now, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us. We pray that you would uh, open up our hearts and our minds, that we might see and understand what Daniel 4 is about, that you would help us to see Jesus and what it means to be his disciple. And Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to, to think through what Daniel 4 has to say to us about making disciples in our community. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't tend to like people who get too full of themselves. Uh, so, for example, a, a number of people have trouble with our current Prime Minister because they think he's sort of arrogantly rich and he just doesn't relate to the average Joe in our community. Or sometimes people have difficulty with outspoken sports people, uh, people who overstate their ability or overstate their achievements. And then there's a whole heap of people in the entertainment industry, movie stars, music stars, who think they're better than everybody else simply because they're famous. And that can make them difficult to swallow on occasions. And then there's a guy in America called Donald Trump. I don't need to talk more about him. We don't tend to like people who get too full of themselves. We want them cut down to size. We want to see them humbled in some way that brings them back down to earth. Now Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king. He led a nation that ruled the world. They knew it and he knew it. But the problem was he didn't know God and he didn't understand that the power he had was given to him by God. Now in previous episodes, Nebuchadnezzar had come into contact with God and his power, you might remember. And after Daniel revealed to him a dream in which he saw how great his kingdom was, but also what would happen to it in the future, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed that Daniel's God was the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the, the revealer of mysteries. And after he saw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego survive the blazing furnace, he issued a decree 
that, that nobody from any nation or language could say anything against the, the God of these three men or else they would be cut into pieces and their houses turned to rubble. But despite this, Nebuchadnezzar was still very much full of himself. And chapter 4 then feels a little bit like one more time for the dummies. As Nebuchadnezzar faces up to the truth that God is far more powerful than he could ever imagine or could be or ever would be. And that while Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would one day pass by, God's kingdom would remain for all eternity. And so the story begins with a proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter 4 is like one of those TV shows. You sort of start in the modern day and then for most of the rest of the show you're sort of filling in the backstory to see how you got to this point. And so Nebuchadnezzar begins with his conclusion. You can see it there in verse 1. Have a look. King Nebuchadnezzar talking. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Well, how can a pagan king arrive at such a conclusion? Because he has learnt a lesson about God's kingdom. And the basis of this insightful proclamation is another dream that had terrified him. He had a dream in chapter 2. There are some similarities between chapter 2 and chapter 4. So, for example, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that terrifies him. And so he turned to the wise men of Babylon and asked for their help to interpret the dream for him and they were unable to do it. So then he turned to Daniel to interpret the dream for him. Uh, what is this dream that he had? Well, in summary, we just read about it. In this dream that terrifies him, Nebuchadnezzar sees this great cosmic tree in the middle of the earth which is visible throughout the world. It's both grand and good. Its leaves are beautiful, its fruit is abundant. It's sufficient to feed the whole earth and large enough to house all the birds and shelter all the beasts. But then in this dream, a holy messenger comes to deliver an important message. The tree is to be chopped down. The stump will remain, but it will be bound and be like an animal with a mind to match. And all this will happen so that, as we see in verse 17, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest, lowly, lowliest of men. That's a hard word to say. Yeah. Uh, th th that was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Okay? It scared him. And he wanted to know its meaning. What's his dream about? He explained it to Daniel and he waited for an answer. We pick up the story in verse 19. Have a look. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, 
My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. That's Daniel's interpretation. The dream's about Nebuchadnezzar. He was the tree who'd grown great and strong. His greatness had grown to reach the sky. It was his dominion that that stretched out across the earth as nations nestled in his branches and found security in his rule. He was the one who would be cut down until only a stump remained. He was to be the one who would lose his mind and be driven out to live with wild beasts and eat grass like cows for seven years. He was the great king who would wake up every morning with the mind of an animal. He would be drenched with dew from sleeping out in the open. That's a remarkable fall from grace, isn't it? Now, what was God's purpose for this? Well, it was so Nebuchadnezzar would acknowledge that his kingship was given to him by God. And the command to leave the stump with its roots still in the ground was an indication that the kingdom would be restored and renewed when he recognised and confessed that God was the one true king, that he was sovereign. Now Daniel understood that the dream was not a message then of utter destruction. You see, Daniel got that Nebuchadnezzar needed to realise the delegated nature of his kingship and he needed to humble himself before God. And so he pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar and he explained to him, there's going to be no need for this judgment if only you would humbly acknowledge the Most High God. If only you would renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, 
If you do those things, then your peace and prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar, you can avoid this, but you need to swallow your pride and come before God in humility. Must have been some meeting between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, don't you think? Can you imagine being Daniel delivering a message such as that to the greatest king on earth at the time? How do you reckon you'd go? I'd be terrified, wouldn't you? And given Daniel's reaction in the, in the moment, oh, I so wish that this was about your enemies and not about you. I think Daniel was pretty fearful too. But, but there are some things here that I think we can learn about making disciples that we can learn from Daniel's method in how he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I don't think we're actually going to ever, I don't know, interpret a dream where we're going to tell someone that they're going to go and live like an animal for seven years. I don't think the content is what we will we'll have to do. But there's plenty here in the way Daniel approaches the situation that helps us as we think through what it means to make disciples. Uh, I've got three things. Firstly, we need to be compassionate. We need to be compassionate. See, Daniel knew he had bad news to deliver to the king and he wished it was true of someone else. Now, as we warn those who are facing the judgment to come, well, we must be tender-hearted and compassionate, mustn't we? I mean, may it never be said of us that we have an attitude of cop that to anyone under the judgment of God. For it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we go about our work of making disciples, we must be compassionate. But secondly, we also need to be honest. Even though Daniel was delivering bad news, he didn't change anything or water it down, did he? He told the truth. As we share the gospel with people, we need to tell the truth. We need to speak the truth in love. We're not to change the gospel or water it down or change the implications of the gospel for people. And so we need to keep tenderly pointing people to Jesus and to his sacrifice for us and to salvation that is found in him alone. Now sometimes when we tell the truth, we can do it in a sort of destructive way. Uh, My children, when they're arguing amongst themselves, they'll say things that are true but they're just unkind to say it in that situation or just unloving to explain this truth. Now, I was trying to think of specific examples because it happens quite a bit, but I'll just pick one. It's a bit trivial. Well, one of my children will say to the other one, oh, I'm better at maths than you, so you're hopeless. Well, it might be true that you're better at maths than them, but it's not loving to say it and it's unkind to say it like that you know what I mean and I think sometimes when we share the gospel with people we can either tell the truth harshly instead of being loving but I think what we most normally do is that's a terrible phrase most normally do anyway what we normally do is I think we pull back on the truth because we fear the reaction We don't want to hurt people's feelings or make them uncomfortable. And so Daniel here, I think, encourages us to keep thinking we need to be honest. 
It's like the truth of, you know, warning someone to get out of the way of the oncoming car. If we don't tell them, they'll get hit. The loving thing to do is to speak the truth with compassion. And I'd rather people hate me for lovingly telling them the truth than to see them going to hell because I chickened out because I was fearful of how they'd react. We need to be compassionate. We need to be honest. But thirdly, we need to offer hope. Uh, Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar hope. If he renounced his wickedness and was kind to the oppressed, your peace and prosperity would continue. There was hope in the, in the, in the dream itself that there was still a stump that could regrow. And so when we speak to people about Jesus, we need to speak of the hope that Jesus brings, that Jesus brings true meaning and true fulfilment and Jesus brings everlasting life. And so as we make disciples, we can learn from Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, we need to be compassionate, we need to be honest and we need to offer the hope that's found in Jesus. Well, the question is, did Nebuchadnezzar listen to Daniel and heed his warning? The short answer is no. In verse 28 we read, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we see, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of his palace. And the the, the roof of his palace was, was one of the most elevated points in the city. From there he could sort of see over all the people that he reigned over. And if they were out looking up, they could see him up on the roof. And as he was walking around that day, Nebuchadnezzar was full of self-admiration and self-appreciation. Now, some of you would have heard of Greg Norman. He's a, he was a famous golfer. Uh, he was the world's best. He's an Australian guy. He was the world's best golfer in the decade before Tiger Woods came on the scene and then he was number one golfer for a very long time. But Greg Norman, back in his heyday, in 1993... He shot a blistering round to win the British Open, which is one of the world's major tournaments. And afterwards, he was full of self-admiration. Have a listen to what he said. He said, I can honestly say in my entire career, I've never gone around a golf course and not mishit a shot. But today, I never missed one. I hit every driver perfect, every iron perfect. I'm in awe of myself. Well, on the rooftop that day, Nebuchadnezzar was in awe of himself. Look at verse 30. Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He couldn't be more full of himself if he tried. He was a man in awe of himself. But as powerful and mighty as he was, God is more so. Because look what happens in verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven 
until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Madness came just as it had been predicted. Nebuchadnezzar was driven out to live amongst the wild animals. He had acted and behaved like an animal rather than a man living in the image of God, ruling the world under God's rule. And as a result, he found himself in an animal's place, having no human dignity and no human reasoning. He looked like an animal, he thought like an animal, he lived with the animals. How the mighty fell. That's quite a journey. The most powerful king in the world at the time, out in the field, living like a cow. Well, that's not the end of the story, though, of course, because there was always the promise of restoration. And seven years after Nebuch- seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven. It's hard to know exactly what that means, but it's clearly symbolic of repenting of his pride. And so finally, his sanity was restored. And then he burst into praise. You see it there in verse 34, speaking about God. He says, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And you can see immediately a change in the language, can't you, from that day on the rooftop. Because previously it was all about him and his power and his glory and his majesty, but now he recognises that God's kingdom endures. God does as he pleases. No one is more powerful than God. They can't hold him back. And when Nebuchadnezzar repented, God acted with the same mercy that we see time and time again. Not only was Nebuchadnezzar's sanity restored... But his kingdom was restored and it regained its glory and splendour. And so here we have a story of riches to rags and back to riches again. Nebuchadnezzar was a man full of pride who was cut down in humiliating fashion but who eventually acknowledged God as the most high God of all the universe the one who gives power and the one under whom everyone else exercises their power and authority. So there's a summary of the contents of Daniel chapter 4. But again, we're contemplating that question of what does it say to us about making disciples? Making disciples by responding to the changing face of our society. Well, we're going to finish up with three more things. Uh, Firstly, Christians must be humble, must be humble. We are saved by grace, not by who we are or because of anything we've done. In fact, in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar's experience is symbolic of Christian conversion, isn't it? A person needs to give up seeking glory and honour for themselves. They need to understand that life doesn't revolve around them and whatever skill or power or gift or anything they have, has been given to them by God. It's not theirs by right. A Christian gives up on these things and and realises that there is a greater king who is worthy of submitting our lives to. 
a king who rules for all eternity, but who also gave up his life to die for us. That's worth remembering at this point in the restoration process. It's God who does all the work of restoring us, isn't it? So Christians must be humble. And as we go about the work of making disciples, we want people, don't we, to humbly come before God, to to acknowledge who God is, to acknowledge who Jesus is, and to acknowledge the work that God has done through Jesus for them. Humility is a big part of calling people to faith and repentance. Now, just a little side note for a minute. As, as we live our Christian lives, th- there will be many an occasion, I suspect, where we actually forget about the humility and sort of slip back into pride, believing how good we are or how worthy we are. And I reckon it's often at those times, if your experience is like mine, that God sends a period of trial to bring us back to him. He does something that, that, that makes us humble again. Now, I don't know anyone who's been forced to go and live in a paddock for seven years and act like a cow, but there are other things that God does to humble us before him. A season of sickness, perhaps. The loss of a job. Uh, the failure of something that we've been keen on, a ministry, a business, or something like that. A relationship breakdown, perhaps even the death of a loved one. God God can use all these things to humble us and to bring us back to him. As we think about making disciples, we need to remember Christians must be humble. The second thing, uh, Christians must give up on their own kingdom and focus on growing Jesus' kingdom. You see, life isn't about success in ministry or in business. It's not about growing large church numbers. It's not about becoming more wealthy or more secure or more comfortable in our homes. Life's about Jesus. And life's about serving Jesus. And life's about serving his kingdom. And therefore, Jesus' kingdom should drive all our decisions, uh, how we use our time and how we use the gifts that God gives us, how we use our financial resources. Now sometimes, or often perhaps, our focus on Jesus' kingdom will will come at a cost to us because there are simply so many times when our desires are not in alignment with how God wants us to live. But we need to give up on our own kingdom and focus on growing Jesus' kingdom. And again, as we make disciples, we want people to see the folly of growing their own kingdom in their lives, don't we? Yeah, it's right to work hard, it's right to provide for your family. So many things are right, but you've got to put it in context and in perspective about Jesus' kingdom. And so we want people to come to know Jesus as their king, as their Lord as well as their saviour, so that they live for him. And related to that point... The third one is we are to make disciples, not of ourselves, but disciples of Jesus. And I think a helpful diagnostic question to ask about this might be something like this. If I left, would this person keep growing as a Christian or are they growing increasingly dependent on me? 
You say in disciple making, of course, it's absolutely essential to build relationships. And it's great for mature believers to minister to other believers and, and to teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But in doing that, we need to be so careful that we keep pointing people to Jesus and to his saving grace and to his kingdom so that they can see we're all about growing Jesus' kingdom and we're not sort of surreptitiously going about growing a kingdom of our own which would stand in opposition to him. Now at the end of the day, a right perspective will prevent us from getting too full of ourselves and it will keep us humble. When we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and continually remind ourselves of his glory and power, well, there comes a time when you just have to lay down your guns in surrender and think, he's just far, far, far better than I am. I mean, the comparison's so one-sided, it's ridiculous. Moreover, he graciously continues to welcome us back when we turn back to him, he forgives us our sin and he sets us on our feet again. The wonderful mercy of God. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we thank you for all that means for us. We thank you that Jesus has paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. But Father, it's not by our might or by our power, but because of your love and mercy and your power in the Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. Father, we thank you for this... Uh, teaching from Daniel, uh, we thank you for the way Daniel responded to King Nebuchadnezzar and that we can learn from that, the need to be compassionate and honest and to offer people real hope. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't be going about building a kingdom of our own but that we'd be totally focused on Jesus and his kingdom and that as we make disciples, we continually point people to Jesus and what he's done for them. And Father, we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.